Happy Monday and may the 4th be with you. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Brianne Fallon and with me today is... David McConaughey. It's great to join you again, Brie. Sequestered as we are by thousands of miles in our own little private recording studios, safe hopefully from coronavirus. And on a very special day, we are chatting. It is May the 4th. Our podcast has fallen on International Star Wars Day. And we have something very exciting. I think we would call it a clipisode, wouldn't we, Dave? I think I think that's where we're going with clip clipisode. To, today we're we're really fortunate. We are taking advantage of the catalog of material that the Religious Studies Project has produced over the last nine years. And we have clips from six different episodes that have aired featuring Carol Cusick, Marcus Davidson, Timu Terra, Adam Pasami, Vivian Asimov, and Beth Singler, with interviews by Chris Cotter, Ross Downing, Sammy Bishop, David Robertson, and Brianne Fallon. So please enjoy this special Star Wars clip episode from the Religious Studies Project. Among the earliest episodes that the Religious Studies Project recorded was one between David Robertson and Carol Cusick discussing the idea of invented traditions. So let's begin there. Why should scholars take invented religions seriously? I think the best way into that query is to understand that human beings create to some extent their reality in the sense that they, as individuals and then in communities, tell narratives that make meaning and they externalise those narratives. Those narratives gain an objective status and then they're re-internalised by individuals and communities as something that has facticity outside of simply being a human cultural production. That is a kind of summary of Peter Berger and Thomas Luckmann's social constructionist model of reality building and religion is a kind of worldview and people do precisely the same thing with religions when they join a religion when they take on a religion they learn new vocabulary they tell new stories to each other new converts or people who are drifting close to joining are told those stories and rehearsed in actions and language so that they come to be part of the community there's a lot to work with here, but from the beginning we see that Kuzak's approach to understanding invented traditions includes ritual, it includes community, it includes, most importantly, narrative. And one of the things that we can really see when we start talking about Star Wars is that all of these things coalesce. We have a body of narrative that has created in the participants, the observers, the audiences who engage with this material, a strong sense of community cohesion. And later it has included a variety of actions from the play acting of children to the very serious activities of adults who may be engaged in Jediism as a form of religious expression. A few episodes later, Christopher Cotter speaking with Marcus Davidson, hit directly on this question from a slightly different paradigm of fiction-based religions. Let's listen in on that. Um, now, a, a fiction-based religion is, is a real religion in the real world, 
um, but one which takes uh, much of its inspiration from a fictional text. Um, a good example is uh, so-called Jediism, which is um, which is named after the Jedi Knights out of the Star Wars movies. So now Star Wars, that's a good example of a fictional uh, text with a very elaborate fictional universe. Um, Jediism takes over the Jedi Knight role or identity, a belief in the Force from the Star Wars movies uh, and certain practices like meditation. Um, and they base their identity and their religion largely, though not only, on a certain fictional text, in this case, Star Wars uh, movies. Now we have two different ways to think about Jediism. We can think of it as an invented tradition, and that encompasses a wide range of religious communities that, through their deliberate efforts, make a religious community come alive. And in this sense, invented is a way that we could think about all religious communities and to erode some of the distinctions between a historical tradition that has decades or centuries of history to back it up and something that is on the cutting edge of becoming recognized uh, alongside those other religious modalities. On the other hand, fiction-based religion really asks about the inspiration that brings a community together, and in that sense, really relies much more on the role of the narrative in creating things. But there's a third way that we can go. In an interview between Sammy Bishop and Adam Pasami, we can see that hyper-real religions is a third path for us, drawing on the work of Frederick Jameson and Jean Baudrillard, Professor Prasami speaks of the way in which Jediism is a bricolage or an assemblage which picks and chooses elements from spirituality and philosophy and the popular culture source for the Jedi materials. Let's listen in. So hyperreal religions are, uh, for example, re religions such as Jediism, Matrixism. Um, but before we discuss them in some more detail, could you give us some of the cultural context that they've come from? Yes. And um, and here in my work, I discuss how the new religions are created through new social media and the Internet. But, of course, uh, the, the, the changes in society and culture is not just about those new technologies. They're also about some profound changes happening with regards to um, market capitalism. And uh, in my work, I speak in my, in my work, I speak about neoliberalism, in which this has started with since the 1980s with the work, of course, of the politicians Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. But it it, it has moved and adapted itself. Uh, and uh, to use the, the the work of Mitchell Dean, it's a thought collective. In that sense, it adapts itself. It moves around. And today, we are facing what can be called digital capitalism. It's a new phase of capitalism. If I can come back to the work of Frederick Jameson, in which he speaks about three phases of capitalism, and the latest that he mentioned in his work in the 1980s was uh, late capitalism. Today, we can argue that we're in the fourth stage, which is digital capitalism. And there are new fortunes that are made in the digital world. 
this new inequalities that are made as well. And uh, these new technologies, those social and cultural changes, are also affecting religion. And one of these change is allowing people to go on online to mix and match various spiritualities, philosophies, together with popular culture. And today in those new activities, uh, the religious actor is almost a prosumer, a producer and a consumer of culture online. And with uh, Judaism, which I've called a hyper-real religion, which is a type of a similar of religion. Hyper-reality makes reference to the work of Jean Baudrillard, and where he speaks about copy of the copy and a simulacrum. And here, when you analyze the, the text online, or in various other forms of new social media as well, uh, you see that people involved in Judaism construct a type of bricolage or assemblage, pick and choose certain elements from various spiritualities and philosophy, and use this as a source of support to speak about Judaism. But Judaism, in a way, they do, of course, realize that this is a work of fiction, but it makes sense to them. Uh, in, if you go back to the 1980s with the New Age movement, in which uh, people were creating spirituality for themselves by themselves, by picking and choosing certain elements in spiritualities and, and philosophy, in hyper-real religions, you have people who do that as well. They create a spirituality for themselves by themselves, but include popular culture more and more. Mm. So you referred to this as the Pygmalion effect. Yes. Can you explain that in some more detail? Yes, indeed. The, the Pygmalion effect, and here I'm making reference to the, the, the Greek uh, myth, uh, Pygmalion, who was this sculpture who created um, the, the, the sculpture of a, of a woman whom he fell in love with. Her name was Galathea and wanted that sculpture to come to life. And uh, Aphrodite uh, heard um, him and uh, gave life to this statue, and she came to life. And that's the idea with the Pygmalion process. More and more we see the divisions between popular culture and and our everyday life being blurred. And it's not just in religion. You have, for example, the phenomenon of cosplay. People who go on certain festivals or certain events and start to dress as the favorite characters. Uh, such a, on May the 4th, more and more there's some events or comics gone. People dress in various um, costumes. Uh, you have zombie walks. People who will go and disguise themselves as zombies and start marching. Uh, you do have the Quidditch games from the Harry Potter. And some uh, new sports have been created, not just Quidditch games, but also chess boxing, which is from the, the, the comics of Anki Bilal. And um, that, uh, that author created the sport of chess boxing, which is mixing playing chess and boxing. And we are now more competitions happening in real life. So here, and to, to come back again to the work of Frederick Jameson, when Frederick Jameson speaks about late capitalism, and when I speak about digital capitalism, it also affects culture. When Jameson was speaking about late capitalism, he realized that the way it was affecting culture is that it was uh, blurring the distinction between art and popular culture. And our art was getting influenced by popular culture, and popular culture was being influenced by art. And it was speaking about various forces of pastiche approach, of bricolage, and this intersection between those two fields of uh, creativity. And in digital capitalism, what I'm arguing is that it's popular culture with everyday life, 
in which we find that everyday life gets inspired by popular culture. And of course, as always, popular culture inspired by everyday life. But we've got this new direction. It's always existed, but it's becoming stronger and stronger. And uh, so the Pygmalion process makes reference to this uh, blurring of the boundaries between popular culture and everyday life in this phase of digital capitalism. And some religions are affected. And some religions are created, so Judaism, Matrixism. But there are different variations as well. You do have people who will follow that religion and say that I'm a Jediist and I'm inspired by the work of uh, the narrative of Star Wars, uh, which is based on various aspects of various philosophies and religions. But some people might say, I'm inspired by Star Wars, but I won't call myself a Jediist. So it's not, and or someone will go and, 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 and read or watch the Da Vinci Code and be inspired by the story there and reflect on their own religion, not necessarily uh, believing the, the, the narrative that's been said, but it's about people getting some inspiration and, of course, at different levels of inspiration that you can find when you use popular culture and religion. What's fascinating about the role of inspiration here is that we don't have to look very far beyond cosplay, beyond the purchasing of licensed merchandise beyond the play acting of children pretending to be Jedis to see that inspiration actually goes quite deep for some people. And this was the case in an interview between Ross Downing and Vivian Asimos about Slenderman and online mythology, where they were speaking about Jediism and also about tattoos acquired by people that were inspired by the legend of Zelda. Let's listen into that. Well, as, as a case study and being able to, to see that and see how, uh, not to get into, you know, psychology too much, but the, the cognitive aspects and uh, the, the, the meme, uh, how something goes literally viral as if it is like a, a, a virus idea that it takes over people and is used applied in in it takes over their their own creativity like you say if someone's a game designer doing a movie or something like that i think this has broad social applications because if we see your work if if, if we can see that as an example there we can apply that to how other online religions are developing um, because these are also you know in a way brainwashing people because you, you, no one can get away from the internet. Yeah. And if you are drawn to, like, the Matrix because you love the films, and then you're a little bit spiritually interested, and you know, uh, people are doing a Matrix religion. It, it seems almost like you know, people are being certain people are being led down. A, yeah, down a path I mean, there's there's a bit of an issue with that in the sense that, I, first of all, I don't like the term viral, which I know is uh, I'm gonna <laughs> sorry for like being that person. He's like, I don't like that term, but it tends to be associated, I think, with popular culture and particularly the internet because of the sense that it makes it feel like it's something that happens to you. Mm. But I think what's most demonstrated by not only my case study, but a lot of other people's case studies that happen online is that it's people actually taking control. So it's not that mm. something's taking control of them. It's them taking this and saying, I'm going to put my own creativity on this. Right. And it's an agency that I think the word viral strips away. Yeah. And I think connected to that is this sense of, particularly in the academic study of religion, I think it's very easy to look at the big, basically to look at the things that you can clearly point to and say, that's 
that's a religion and I'm going to mm-hmm. talk about that. Right. And with hyper real religions, the things like Jediism, that's something that's happening of people going, that's pop culture becoming a religion. I'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to talk about. I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, where I do think it has its place. However, what's missing then is the middle ground. Yeah. So you have the people who aren't interested in popular culture at all. And then you have these extreme interested members, but you don't have to write Jediism on a census record to have Star Wars mean something to you. And there's a really weird middle ground. So for me, what I've always found fascinating about the study of religion in general, even when I wasn't doing pop culture, and what I've really grabbed onto is pop, in pop culture studies is that gray area between religion and non-religion, mm. where it's incredibly hyper-meaningful and might be religion, but mm. might not be all at the same time. And mm. where is that cross-section? What is religion yeah. when you look at it in that way? And basically what it ends up being is when does something go from hyper-meaningful to banal or backwards? Right. You know, when is it just something that you have on in the background because you think it's fun? And when is it something that you think about constantly or you're reminded of in your everyday life and you get tattoos of it and you, you know, think about it? I have um, my master's was on Legend of Zelda, uh, the video game. And there was somebody who had a tattoo of the Triforce and they told on their arm and they told me. So for people, I guess, who don't know, the Triforce is a three triangles and they are made up of the ideas of power, wisdom and courage, which is found in the, the world. But basically, the myth ends up being that essentially the, the perfect person who can touch this item from the gods, the Triforce, is someone who has equal parts, power, wisdom, and courage. <laughs> so this person, when they had the tattoo, they described it as a way of they were having an issue in life, or maybe they were starting to get angry about something that they felt they shouldn't be angry about. Or, you know, when you have those those times mm-hmm. in life, and they would look at it and they would remember about how the ideal person has power, wisdom, and courage. Right. Now, they would never put Hylian on a census record, associate themselves with that kind of religion, but that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's them changing their identity mm-hmm. and their way of living mm-hmm. in this world based on a video game that they played. And while it may be the case that video game lovers of Zelda are not listing Hylian on their census form, it is the case that fans of Star Wars who have taken the tenets of Jediism as expressed over the course of the many films and novels and video games and all of the peripheral items that make up the canon of Star Wars religious messages, that people in the United Kingdom have actually written in in 2001 and 2011, Jedi as their religion. Let's listen to Beth Singler explain this a little bit in a recent conversation with Chris Cotter about artificial intelligence. This is in the context of her research on the phrase blessed by the algorithm. But yeah, you can, you can, I've created a very rough typology of the types and some are about getting decent recommendations through the algorithm on, on sites like Spotify. Some people are very pleased their own content has been recommended to other people. There are people who sort of talk about it in a very nebulous way. Today, I've been blessed by the algorithm and no more information. Mm -hmm. And then some people who really push the pseudo religious language and come up with little prayers. And one of the things I I was very interested in some of my other work around new religious movements was the move between parody and legitimation yeah so i looked 
a lot of uh, um, Jediism yeah. and the census and how some people did certainly do uh, write Jedi in the census in 2001 and 2011 as parody that they were upset about being asked about religion. They didn't like religion perhaps itself. So they wrote Jedi, but that snowballing effect of legitimation, the more people talk about a thing, the more legitimate it seems can have an effect. So even if a lot of these tweets are tongue in cheek, um, it's still kind of distilling out the conversation. For those of us thinking critically about what it means to talk about Star Wars and religion, one of the most salient data points we have is those persons who are willing on a form like the census to identify themselves as Jedis. One of the episodes that we've published where this kind of research into how people identify on forms uh, has really come to the to the forefront is an interview by our very own co-editor Brianne Fallon with Timu Tyra. They definitely um, seem to be having much more of a, a voice when they're registered um, as opposed to an unregistered community which wouldn't have that weight behind the removal of the stone. So there's definitely a big benefit there. Um, are there any other case studies that you think are, are relevant before we move on to the methodology side of the interview? There, there are plenty of case studies uh, that are useful useful uh, to compare with uh, this case and others. And, and uh, if I just uh, mention some of case studies I've done myself, so I've studied Wiccans in Finland who, and their registration process. They failed in that, but that's a very interesting case anyway, because, because in that process, um, expert committee was really trying to make up their mind uh, whether, whether Wiccans can be regarded as religion. Mm-hmm. And I've also, also studied, uh, the Jedi, Jediism in Britain, or done, I've done one case study concerning that, and then I've studied uh, the Crude Network in Britain jointly with Susan Owen. Mm-hmm. We co-authored a chapter on the case where uh, the Crude Network received charitable status um, under the, the religion banner uh, in, in England and Wales. And even though laws are different in different countries, and it's, it doesn't have to be about law, it can be about other institutions, for example. But, but many, many cases have clear connections even when the law and, and the context is different. So these case studies, what do they teach us about methodology and using the term religion should we be outlining it in our articles you know for the purpose of this work religion's going to be this or do you think that's unuseful uh should we be using a term like faith or tradition where where do we go from here with these case studies i think overall these case studies show how people make use of the category of religion how they promote their own interests uh, but if we look from other direction, they, they also show how we are governed mm-hmm. by the category of religion. And uh, in, in studying these cases, um, I am highlighting quite strongly 
that I don't define religion in these particular cases. I study um, those cases where other people negotiate what counts as religion and why something counts as religion and what are the, the consequences of those processes. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is quite clear that and many people find it very tempting to ask in, in these so-called boundary cases that, well, in, in my definition, this is really a religion uh, or that this group is really not a religion. And I, I, I try to uh, emphasize that I'm not doing that at mm. all. Mm. Even when I was part of this media debate concerning people of the bear, I never suggested that people of the bear uh, is a religion or that it is not. And I never suggested that the group should be granted the status of a religious community. Mm-hmm. I was simply trying to highlight how, how a society operates by using that category. Mm-hmm. But still, it is quite common that people still ask you the question mm-hmm. that how do you define religion then? And, and uh, then I have to say that, well, within this setting, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not arguing that that um, religion cannot be used and defined uh, nominally for for particular purposes, but I'm insisting that that these cases, if they are studied without defining religion, are much more interesting and and. I think the results are more interesting. At least that's that's my opinion. Of course, we can debate endlessly mm. what counts as interesting and, and relevant. <laughs> yeah. But but that's that's my approach, and I try to show, uh, demonstrate by by doing these case studies that other people can see if they find the analysis interesting. Mm. I think sometimes we get so hung up on is it a religion, is it not that we miss what else the case can offer. And I think in these examples, for example, the people of the bear, the idea that their sacred stones were being moved and um, that idea of legitimacy is, in my opinion, more interesting, as you say, we could debate that, than whether they were a religion or not. It's There's so much more to these case studies than just yes or no, this sort of black and white thinking. I don't know what you think about that. Um so how do you think power plays into this whole matter of the term religion and naming different boundary groups? Well, I tend to ask quite simple questions in these case studies, such as who benefits of being a religion or who benefits of denying religiosity of a group or a practice. And, and I can also ask, how are we governed if I'm trying to look at uh, the level of, of state or society more broadly, not just not just a particular group. And I think it, it is quite clear that people achieve something by being a religion. But that happens within the governing structures of society. So by being a religion, you gain some, but at the same time, you lose some. When you get some concrete benefits, you are usually uh, molded in a way that that you have to adjust yourself 
to the criteria that is used in an institution, in law, or, or wherever. And that is typically so that you have to represent your group as somehow reminding of Protestant Christianity. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, you are sort of marginalized or domesticated in a way that, or as some people say, you are depoliticized in a way. Um, so the idea goes so that, that being a religion definitely guarantees some privileges to selected groups. But at the same time, it distances them from the so-called secular center of mm-hmm. society, sort of political so-called secular power. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the main uh, and, and and very simple example how power is part of this analysis of power is part of these cases. So where does this leave us? We can recognize Star Wars as an invented tradition in the sense that the community that advocates, that elevates its status, uses the framework that other religious traditions use, government strategies such as listing oneself as a member of the Jedi religion on a census form. We can see that there are some theoretical considerations when we talk about fictional religions in the ways in which they blur the line between popular culture and religion, both for participants and audiences. They blur the line between religions that exist outside of the film space and the religions that are created within the film space. And then finally, here at the end, I think it's really obvious for all of us, thanks to uh, Timu Tyra's excellent comments, that the category of religion is really what comes into question when we start talking about things like Star Wars or The Matrix or the work of Octavia Butler or many other fictionally inspired religious ways of being in the world that we can rely on these stories for sustenance in times when we are challenged that we can turn to these as distractions and that we can use them to get away from the moments that life brings at us that we feel ill-equipped to deal with. These are the narrative qualities of these heroic stories. And I'm excited to share with you all the thoughts over the past decade that contributors to the religious studies project have brought to bear that have relevance for Star Wars, and we look forward to expanding this ongoing conversation with you again in the future. Thank you. We hope that you enjoy the opportunity to really think about invented religions and maybe the ways in which invented traditions inspire or take their inspiration from real religion and really muddying the water about what you think of as a real religion and how you construct that term. In the episode, there was quite a bit of discussion about the number of people that put down Jedi as their religion of choice in the UK census. But 
One of the things that has also occurred in 2001 at that same moment was 70,000 people in Australia. That's that's 0.37% of the population of Australia put down Jedi as uh, as their religious affiliation. Bree, uh, do, do you remember this moment? I was only eight at the time. So I don't <laughs> really say I, I can remember it, but I definitely remember studying it um, at university and the idea that it was a viral push that people were going to put themselves down as Jedi on the census, almost sort of as as a mockery of both the census itself and the concept of what a real religion actually constitutes. And not only was the fact that that many people put themselves down as Jedi on the census, obviously a controversy. The Australian Bureau of Statistics actually ultimately declared that people who labelled themselves as Jedi were going to be classified as part of the non-defined category. They weren't actually going to be categorised as a Jedi category on their own. And so they kind of just got swept in with all the sort of other non-defined things that came around in the census that particular year. And so it sort of threw into, you know, question for a lot of people, how useful is that sort of data when counting adherence to religion, what counts, what doesn't count, who decides what counts. And it was quite interesting at the time in terms of those sort of definitional categories. And Adam Possum, I actually wrote a lot about it in his book, Religion and Popular Culture, and we heard a bit from him today. Um, Dave, what do we have coming up next week? We have... Uh, well, next time we actually have something that, that goes right in line with what we've been talking about, the relationship between identity and governance and the way in which these tactics or strategies to undermine the authority of... Um, governments when they try to use racial or religious categories to really structure their data about the people who live in them. Except this time, um, we get to go to uh, Japan in the post-war era. And so we'll be seeing uh, Joel and Thomas interviewed by Brett Asaki on race, religious freedom, and empire in post-war Japan. And this is Thanks to uh, Joel and Thomas's excellent book, Faking Liberties, which we heartily recommend to everybody who's listening now. And until then, I think the only thing that's left to say is thanks, thanks for, listening. for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals.